Sam in the beginning was correct. Every time I come to Park Hills, I feel like I have a new family member. The last time I came, I only had a wife and a daughter. This time I come, I have a son. So who knows what I have next time we come back. I, just, I may have twins, who knows, but uh, my wife is shaking her head, please, no. Um, no, uh, the Lord is, is gracious, and, and he has blessed us so much, and so we are so thankful. Uh, before I jump into the, the text and the sermon this morning, I'd like to uh, just extend on behalf of myself and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, a thank you, uh, a gratitude towards you as individuals and as a congregation as you have supported uh, myself and eight other individuals from the seminary uh, recently to a trip to Ethiopia to speak to pastors. And just to give you a very brief update on that, it was a very fruitful time. We had the chance and the opportunity to go to three different cities, or I should say one large city and two very small towns, um, and speak to over 350 pastors or pastors in training. And so that was very fruitful. Um, in Ethiopia, there's a strong push for the prosperity gospel. Uh, there's even well-intentioned pastors out there who are not, in, not intentionally preaching the prosperity gospel, but it's all they know, and so that's what they're preaching. And so we had the opportunity to go and basically speak on what is the true gospel. And I was assigned the, the topic of repentance and faith. And so it was just a joy to get, get to work through texts and and just prep lessons and sermons to, to speak to these brothers as they uh, prepare to do ministry in this, in this hard area of the world. And so I just want to say thank you so much for your prayers, uh, for how you supported financially, um, and just, just the thoughts and prayers going out. Uh, by the end of the two and a half weeks, we were drained of energy, primarily because of the flights. There were so many difficulties with those, but uh, we just kept looking at Facebook posts and emails that we were being sent from different people, and it was just so encouraging to hear, hey, we're still praying for you guys. We have no idea what's going on over there, but we are praying for you guys. And so even some of those came from you all. So we just wanted to say thank you, and uh, they were deeply appreciated while we were over there in Africa. Um, before I jump in text, let me, let me pray for us one more time, if you don't mind. Father, you are so gracious to us. You are so kind that you have chosen to speak to us, that it is not a question to us as to whether or not we can hear from you. And so I pray this morning that by the power of your Spirit, your Son would be glorified and magnified in the preaching of your Word. Not just so uh, we can learn something new or that we can feel better about our lives, but God, that we would be challenged and that we would recognize that change in our lives comes only through you. And so, Father, may you be glorified this morning. Uh, remove me. Just speak through me. Use me as your mouthpiece this morning, Father. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Many years ago, John Piper wrote a book entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. And I would highly encourage you to read it if you have never read it. Um, and one of the reasons I'd encourage you to read it is because after the sermon this morning, I hope that you see an individual who has wasted his life uh, because he has failed to live up to the potential he had to bring ultimate glory to God through his life. See, we'll be in the book of Judges this morning. I invite you to turn to chapter 16 of Judges. Just a, a short, brief background as to what's taking place thus far. In the book of Judges, we get to take a glimpse into a dark time in Israel's history as they have failed time and time again to follow the Lord. 
He has given them instructions on what to do, and they fail to do those things. They end up under, uh, end up serving a foreign god. God then allows the foreign nation to oppress them. In the oppression, they begin to cry out to God. They realize what they've done is wrong, and they cry out to God and ask for deliverance. He raises up a judge, and this judge delivers them militarily. And they begin to turn and follow God again. But then just very briefly after that, they begin to forget about God, forget about what he's done. And they begin to chase after false gods again. And this is a constant cycle taking place through Judges. And in Judges 13, we actually read of the final judge in the book of Judges. And the difference with him is all the other judges previous to Samson, he was chosen to be a judge before birth. His parents, Manoah and his wife, who is unnamed, are unable to have children. They are older in years, and the Lord comes to them by the messenger of an angel and says, Manoah, your wife's going to have a baby, and that baby's going to deliver the Israelites. That baby's going to deliver my people from the Philistines, the, the oppressors in this story. They don't believe him, and after some convincing from the Lord, they finally submit and say, okay, will raise this young man. But there's a stipulation for this young man's life, and the stipulation is he must take the Nazarite vow from birth through his entire life, meaning he can't partake of any wine. He he for sure cannot get drunk. He can never cut his hair, and he can never touch anything dead. Those were the basic rules of this vow. And so Manoah and his wife say, "We we will entrust him to you. We will see that he follows through in those things, that he stays away from those things, and he is born. And we see from the very beginning that Samson does everything he can to oppose God. Not outright, but he tries to flirt with the line of what is really sin and what can I get away with. He views the blessing that he's been given, which is actually strength. The Lord has given him strength to overcome certain things. We read in his life about how he killed a a lion with his bare hands. But yet he breaks the Nazarite vow because he goes back and he digs inside the carcass of that lion because some, deep, some bees have made some honey. And so he takes that and he, f- he feeds himself. He actually takes some of that honey and gives it to his parents. So now he's uh, inviting them to sin along with him, though they unknowingly participate in it. He sees a woman, a Philistine woman, somebody who's not following the Lord, and he says, I want her. And he tells his father, go get me that woman. I want her as my wife. And he doesn't even heed his parents' advice who say, that's not wise, Samson. He says, quiet, I want her. She's beautiful in my eyes. He marries this woman, and her her kinsmen, the Philistines, don't like the fact that Samson is now her husband because of all the chaos he has caused them. So they trick her, and they say, we're going to murder your family and burn down your house if you do not deliver him over to us so we can kill him. And under that threat... She delivers him over to them. Out of anger, he retaliates against them. It's not a pretty scene. And he's just going back and forth with the Philistines throughout his life. They do something on him, he gets revenge on them. They do something in revenge back, he gets more revenge. And this is just back and forth, back and forth, until we get to chapter 16. And we're going to read in one one part of his life in chapter 16. But I pray that we see that through his life, He is actually modeling for us what Israel's been doing their whole time. 
You see, the, the, the point can be made about the book of Judges as a whole that the point is compromise. You can sum it up in one word, compromise. They would compromise their beliefs, they would compromise their relationship with God, and they would fall into false worship and into that cycle over and over. But the question must be asked, what brings them into this, this compromise? Do they just randomly decide, well, you know, we're going to compromise with our beliefs with God today. What, what gets them to that point? What takes place from the point where they're delivered back to the point where they're no longer following God anymore? I would argue it is complacency. And I've entitled this sermon, The Key to a Wasted Life, and you can fill it in, is complacency. I'm not giving you the key because I want you to chase a wasted life, but I'm giving you the key to avoid. You do not want to participate in complacency. You don't want to be complacent. One of the dangers with complacency, however, is the fact that we don't truly understand what it is. I think immediately we would think complacency is, well, that's just self-sufficiency. I think I, can, I think I can do it on my own. Or it's just pride. Or it's just indifference or apathy or laziness. But I think it's much worse than that. I think it's much worse because I think it's all of those things bottled up in one. I think there's an aspect of self-sufficiency I think there's an aspect of smugness and pride. I think there's an aspect of just laziness and coasting. But I also think that we fail to realize when we're doing those things. No one boasts in the fact that they're complacent. It's because they don't realize that we're there. And I pray that we witness this in Samson's life. See, a brief definition of complacency is when we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into believing that ultimate satisfaction is found within ourselves. And we no longer take God or his word seriously. I think that is what complacency really is. We no longer take God or his word seriously because we think we can find ultimate satisfaction in ourselves. But with that understanding of complacency, I want us to see from Judges 16 that if you settle for the satisfaction you can offer yourself, it will only destroy you. But your complacency will never frustrate the will of God. You see, settling for the satisfaction you can offer yourself will ultimately destroy you. But your complacency will never frustrate or stop or thwart or confuse the will of God. And we're going to see that through five destructive tactics this morning. Five destructive tactics. The first destructive tactic of complacency is that it drives us into deeper unrepentant sin. Our complacency drives us into deeper unrepentant sin. Look at the first few verses of chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her and the Gazites were told Samson has come here. They surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of morning, and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Samson displays for us just what kind of strength he has. This is not a little garden gate he's pulling up okay these are metal stakes and rods and towers and a huge 
iron gate and he carries it on his shoulders and it's not just across the street it's not just to the other side of town he travels 40 miles with this gate on his shoulders and throws them down because he thinks if you remove the gate enemies come in and so now I don't have to worry about these guys other people will take care of them and so we see his strength on display but we also see that he personifies the fool described in Proverbs 26 11 because you see he never repents of his previous sins not once there's no there's no repenting there's no seeking forgiveness from the Lord for what he has done in the past and like a dog returning to his own vomit to his own folly he's doing the same thing in these first three verses you see Gaza is a place is a, is a town in Philistine so he's going into enemy territory not only that is he's finding a woman a foreign woman who's not following the Lord one of the things God has told him previously not to do you are not to marry or be with a woman who is not following the Lord and so he's doing it again but not only, not only that he doesn't care about the character of the woman the text is clear that she's a prostitute so he doesn't even care what she's doing for a living doesn't care about her character her lifestyle all he cares about is he sees her and he wants her and so he thinks I'm gonna take her you see the satisfaction he offers himself through this sexual sin outweighs the conviction of that very same sin he's no longer convicted about the sin at all there's nothing there's nothing about the sin that makes him feel like yeah, this isn't what God wants me to do he embraces it fully and this is exactly what sin does to us you see it promises us the satisfaction it says give in to this and you can have what you want what you desire what you think you really need but we're never truly gratified in that satisfaction we're never truly satisfied in it and so we begin to think well maybe I didn't pursue it hard enough or I didn't I didn't do it the right way or maybe there's more to this sin that I need and we continually give into it over and over and over expecting different results you see he was satisfied Samson was satisfied with the actions and with his life you see his in his mind his actions hadn't destroyed him God hadn't destroyed him because of his actions and by all accounts in his mind he thought every time I get in trouble the strength that the Lord has blessed me with I can use to deliver myself that is his mindset the Lord is giving me this thing and I will use it and I'll deliver myself and he does the same thing in this story he goes into enemy territory visits a woman he shouldn't be visiting and people are pl plotting to kill him in just a few hours and he uses his strength to deliver himself this is how complacency deceives us we become so comfortable in a sin that we begin to think that God's not opposed to that sin I've been doing this sin I've been participating in it for a long time now it hasn't destroyed me it hasn't destroyed those around me God hasn't destroyed me for it God must be okay with this it must not be as bad as everybody says it is to be participating in this and or you think you'll never be found out maybe God doesn't know about this sin maybe as long as the church doesn't know about it God's okay with it and we begin to think I, I, I can be comfortable with this sin because nobody knows but we have to see that as we get more and more comfortable in our sin 
because we are so satisfied in it, because of what we can do for ourselves through that sin, we refuse to give it up. And we lose our awareness to the dangers that come with that sin. And that's actually the second destructive tactic we see in Samson's life here in chapter 16, that complacency blinds us to the danger of our sin. It blinds us to the danger that comes with our sin. Look at verse 4. After he loved this woman, after this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him! And see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will give you each 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, Let's stop there before we go any further. Here he goes again. He has yet to repent of his sin. He hasn't learned his lesson with his first wife. He hasn't learned his lesson with the prostitute. And now he goes to another city and finds this woman. And he sees her, and he wants her, so he takes her. And based on Samson's character, there's no doubt that we should have in the fact that he only wants her because of her looks. It's just how Samson has operated to this point. He sees a woman, he thinks she's beautiful, and he wants that woman. And so the text is clear. He does not hesitate to take this woman who he finds beautiful. And it really appears from the text that Delilah has no desire for Samson himself. So he doesn't even care if she likes him. Because the text is very clear that he loved her. But the Philistine leaders, when they come to her, they have to convince her to seduce him. So it's not even a hey, just do what you're doing, but just make sure you give us this information. They have to pay her in order to seduce him. So he doesn't even care about the fact that she probably doesn't care about him. All he cares about is what he can offer himself through this relationship. And she doesn't even hesitate to begin her manipulation, if we can even call it that. She doesn't try to manipulate him. She just straight up asks, hey, how can you be destroyed, Samson? That is not a question I ever want my wife to ask me, okay? I never want to come home from work and she goes, hey, I was just thinking, what's the one thing that could just ruin you? That's not what I'm looking forward to. I would run from that situation. But Samson's response should shock us. Look at verse 7. She says, how might you be bound so you could lose all your strength and somebody could subdue you? And it says, and he said to her, he just begins to answer. She says, hey, how can you basically die? And he says, oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. He's not concerned. He's not emotionally hurt. He doesn't run. In fact, it seems like it's a game for him. See, as Samson's eyes have promised him satisfaction, his heart has been blinded to the truth of the danger that he's just entered him into. He doesn't care that he's in enemy territory. He doesn't care that this is another enemy woman. He doesn't care that the past two women that he's done this with have led to people trying to kill him. He doesn't care. He's blind to it. His self-satisfaction has made him comfortable in the sin that he's in. 
and it's made him apathetic to the potential dangers that come along with it. And I think we tend to do this with a lot of things. Just a few. Gluttony. You see, we don't see the danger in it because honestly, most of us don't view it as a sin. It's a, it's a lesser sin. You see, when we offer ourselves satis- satisfaction through things like food, we don't like to view that as a sin. That's, that's not what that is. It doesn't worry us. We're not blinded to the danger that brings us to because we're comfortable in it. Partaking of the Lord's Supper. See, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that when you partake of the Lord's Supper in unrepentant sin, you are basically inviting God's judgment upon yourself. And so we think we're comfortable in our sin, and you know, I'll, just, I'll just take the cracker, I'll take the little juice, we'll be fine, it's what we're supposed to do today. But we fail to recognize the danger that comes along with doing that. Or in our evangelism. We're blind to the weight of evangelism when, we, when we're satisfied in the comfort of only sharing the gospel with those who we kind of feel comfortable sharing the gospel with. I, I know that person won't yell at me if I share the Christ with them, so I'll, I'll tell them about Jesus. I'm too tired to do it today. I don't want to have to explain all this stuff to, to those people. I'm, I'm, not just, I'm just not going to do it. And we're satisfied in the comfort that we bring ourselves. And we, and we fail to see that when we don't evangelize, if that person never hears the good news of Jesus Christ, they are destined to face God's wrath. That should weigh heavy on us. We should see that as a danger if we fail to share Christ with someone. But what happens when you become blind to the danger of your own sin? What happens when, 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 when you're so comfortable in it that you no longer see what danger is taking place? Well, I think what we tend to do is what complacency gives us to in our third destructive tactic. Complacency at that point tempts us to play with our sin. We want to flirt with it. Look at the second half of verse, well, we'll start in verse 7 again. Samson said to her, If they bind me with fresh se- seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bow- bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when, touch- when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off of his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight to the pin, then I shall become weak like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen from the loom and the web. 
what a messed up relationship. This is just not pretty at all. You see, he lies to her to get, her, get from her what he wants in the relationship. I, I don't think there's any question what he's getting from this relationship, okay? And so he lies to her. But then she manipulates him because of what she wants out of the relationship. She's thinking, look, if you die, if they can capture you, I get paid, I get famous because I'm the one that took down Israel's leader. And so she just keeps manipulating him over and over. But in addition to this, we see his, his flirtation, his, his playfulness with his sin. He gives her three lies. Not to mention he doesn't learn his lesson. I mean, after she has them come in the first time, you'd think he learned his lesson, but then she says, you lied to me. It, she just told him to his face, hey, you were supposed to be dead right now, but you lied to me. How dare you? Now really, tell me how you can be destroyed. And he's just playing with the sin. He doesn't care. He gets closer and closer to the truth also. Because remember, remember his vow, okay? He, he can't get drunk. He can't even drink the wine, which he's already broken at his, first, at, his, at his marriage a couple chapters previously. He drinks wine at his wedding and gets drunk. He can't touch dead animals, which he did when he touched the carcass of the lion that he killed. But he can't cut his hair, and that's the one thing he hasn't broken yet. But he's getting closer and closer to the truth every time. But he's still playing with the sin because the first thing he says is... Uh, uh, Seven fresh bowstrings. And we think, well, that's just kind of like a random, what, what is he doing with that? But what seven fresh bowstrings actually are, are they, are, they are the tendons of a freshly slaughtered animal. And he doesn't want them dried. He wants them fresh. So what is he doing? He's thinking to himself, I've already touched the dead animal, so I've broken that part of the vow. So now just bring me the, the tendons of that other dead animal and, and wrap me with that. And I still won't lose my strength. He's still playing with, with, with the sin. And then he tells her to bring ropes, fresh ropes, never been used. Again, sounds random, but if we were to go back to his, his first marriage, we would see that what he tells his first wife is, if they bind me with fresh ropes, then I can't, I can't do anything. So he's thinking back to his past. I've done this before, and this was easy. So yeah, bring, bring on the fresh ropes, never been used. I'll lose my strength. He's playing with it again and again. And then it gets to the last one. Just, just, just braid my hair. Braid my hair in this specific way and tie it to this pin. I lose all my strength. You see how close he's getting to the truth? He wants to see how, how, how close can I get to breaking this vow fully before something bad happens. He likes the thrill of it. It's an adrenaline rush for him. You see, his vow... It's just like his sin, or his sin is just like his vow to him. It's a joke. It's a complete joke. And you see, consciously or unconsciously, we, we want to do the same thing Samson does here. We want to see, how close to sin can I really get before it's actually sin? So as we ask questions like, am I, am I allowed to watch that show or that movie? Am I allowed to go participate in this one thing? I, I know it has this kind of iffy stuff, but... You know, I won't actually be doing that, but, but can I participate in it? Can, can I have this and it not be sin? 
We want to see how, how close can I get to it before it's actually sin, before God is actually displeased with me. You see, we have this internal desire in us to see how close we can get to sin without offending God. And when we combine that blindness to the danger of sin with our playfulness with that sin, a distorted reality begins to be produced. And that's the fourth destructive tactic of complacency. It distorts our reality. Look at verse 15. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. She basically annoyed him to death. And that should send chills down our spine if we know the story going forward. But let's see what happens. She vexed him to death, verse 17. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then Delilah saw that he had told her his heart. And she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks from his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. Verse 20, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times, and I will shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands the ravenger of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. At this point in Samson's life, it is clear that he loves Delilah more than he loves God. If that hadn't been made clear yet, that is definitely clear now. You see, his trivial attitude towards God revealed in his deep passion for Delilah as he's revealing all his heart to her he essentially invites her to finalize the breaking of his Nazarite vow. He says, the one thing that I've, I've kept true up to this point, go ahead and break it for me. You see, his complete disregard for God and his vow with God. Samson offers his relationship with God up as a sacrifice in his worship of Delilah. 
You see, Samson's complacency has created a reality for him, one in which Delilah, this woman, is the one who's supposed to be worshipped. What or who are you finding satisfaction in that you're willing to offer up as a sacrifice your relationship with God? Not only that, but once his hair is cut, he jumps up with confidence, but not confidence in God, but confidence in himself. He jumps up and says, I'll break free from this just like I've done before. It'll be easy. You see, his complacency shines through brightest at this moment in his life. But we do this too. We think that we have the strength in and of ourselves to fight any sin that comes our way. And we don't turn to God until we realize, I actually can't defeat this thing on my own. You see, we think, well, that last sin that I used to struggle with when I was a teenager, I don't struggle with that sin anymore. So this, this sin, I can get over it. I can fight it. That, that other sin that I used to struggle with, it, it tempts me every now and then, but, you know, I, I turn it down every time. It's not a struggle for me anymore. But there's a big difference between declaring that sin no longer enslaves you because of the power of the Spirit you have through your unity with Christ or claiming sin no longer enslaves you because you were able to defeat it last time. I didn't give in to previous temptations, therefore I can defeat it this time. The only past success you should ever dwell on and hope in is the cross. That is the only success you should find hope in. You see, because the cross screams where ultimate satisfaction can be found because it is through the cross and Christ's death on the cross that you are offered the ultimate satisfaction in God himself. You see, the false reality that Samson's complacency had created for him assured him no matter what happened, no matter what you did to compromise your walk with God, you're going to get out of this, Samson. You see, Samson believed that his blessing from God was for him and about him. He thought, I can have the blessing of God without God himself. God owes me this blessing because he gave it to me. See, we're tempted to think that our gifts, that God's blessings to us, are for us. They're part of who we are and we can use them for what we want and how we want. That is not the true reality. The danger is we begin to depend on ourselves rather than God. Something similar would be opening the word of God and going, okay, I've got to have my daily quiet time. I've read, I've read, I've read this passage before. I know what it's going to say, but let me, let me read through these four verses and these four chapters, and I know what I'm going to get, but you know, I'm supposed to. See, we think in our own strength. I know what this text says, therefore I don't have to really pay attention to it. I just have to read it to check it off that I did it. We no longer come to God's word wanting to be fed by it. We no longer come to it treasuring it as a priceless treasure that it is. But dependence on God's ongoing sovereign work is not a reality for somebody who is complacent. Look at the Philistines who were here. They, they were praising their God because they had been delivered from their enemy. But they mistake who the true enemy is. The true enemy for them is not God. 
who they should have recognized as the true enemy. That was the purpose of Samson's life. Represent me. Show why I am the one and only true God. But they're praising their God because they think their enemy is Samson. He's been defeated, therefore we're good. We've been delivered. And they're worshiping a false god. They're complacent with where they're at. And if you are not a believer here this morning, I want you to recognize you are complacent with where you're at. You may not be worshiping some little wooden figure or giant wooden figure, but there is an idol in your life that you are worshiping, that you are treasuring more than God himself because you don't see him as actually the enemy, which you have made him to be. But I want not only unbelievers, but believers as well, to recognize that God does not hesitate to show in our text that he is the one and true God. Look at verse 28 as we see the fifth destructive tactic. Complacency leaves us under the judgment of God. Complacency leaves us under the judgment of God. Look at verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with, my, with the Philistines. Then he bowed, and with all his strength, the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. You see, in complacency, we don't tell God, I don't need you, God. This is why complacency shouldn't be just seen as just self-sufficiency. We don't say, hey, God, I don't need you. We actually say, hey, God, take a seat until I actually need you, and then when I call upon you, then I want you to enact the way I think you should enact. You see, God's blessing to Samson meant for salvation for his people actually becomes the instrument for Samson's death, for his destruction. But there's a little hope. Samson's faith is no longer in his own strength, but in the one who provides it. He actually has to call out to the Lord to deliver him. But it's with the wrong motives. Did you catch that? That I may be avenged for my two eyes. His main concern is that the Philistines took the one thing that's been driving his life to this point. Everything his eyes saw that he found beautiful and that he wanted, he took. And they took his eyes. And that's what he wants revenge on. That's what he wants justified. How many times do we ask or assume or even hope that God will enact justice on our behalf in the way we view it to happen rather than uh, enact justice on his behalf? But did you notice the end of verse 30? So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And that is staggering because in his life he killed thousands of people. 
But it's not just for us to go, wow, that's a lot of people he killed. He had so much potential. He was called by God to deliver an entire nation from the enemy of God. And he killed a few thousand enemies in his life. But he did more for God in his death than he did in his life. And it wasn't even because of him. God gave him his strength back so that God's promise would remain true. You see, a wasted life does not mean that God is unable to achieve his promises. See, because back in chapter 13, when God promises to Manoah and his wife that they're going to have a son, he says, and the language is very clear, and we have to catch this language when we read Judges 13, he says, your son will begin to deliver my people from the Philistines. And what just happened? He had just begun to deliver his people. He killed not only just a lot of people, he killed their leaders. And so God was faithful to his promise. He had begun to deliver his people through Samson from the Philistines. His life was wasted because Samson was not satisfied in bringing God the glory with the gift and the blessing God had given him. Instead, Samson used that blessing to pursue the satisfaction in and through himself. His complacency did not prevent God's promises from being fulfilled, though. You see, but the narrative is clear. Samson died. Israel is still in need of a perfect judge to come who will not remain dead, who will stay and rule. But if you've you've read your, your, your Bible before, and maybe you've read through Hebrews, and you get to Hebrews 11, and you read where it has the little title, Heroes of the Faith, or Hall of Fame of of Faith. And you get to the point where it says, and Samson. And you think, why in the world is Samson a hero of faith? This guy's life has been horrible. What am I supposed to look to Samson for and think about? We're tempted to think, well, Samson at least had a little bit of faith. So as long as I have a little bit, then, then we're good. The strength and the quantity of your faith is not the issue. The issue is the object of that faith. True faith is rooted in the promises of God, believing he is capable. But understanding Hebrews as a whole, the point is not, look to to Samson, have at least as much faith as he did, and you're doing all right. You get two thumbs up from God. Rather, the point is to point us to Jesus. The point is to say that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, is whom Samson is pointing towards. Why? Just think about their lives. Samson and Jesus, both miraculous births. Both born with a specific mission to deliver God's people. Both betrayed by somebody very close to them, motivated by greed. Both arrested, mocked, beaten, and both achieve Tremendous victories in their death. You see, in Samson's death, he begins to deliver God's people from the the enemy. In Christ's death, he finishes delivering God's people from the enemy. You see, Samson, in his death, cries out in, in verse 30, Let me die with my enemies. Jesus, in his death, cries out, Let me die 
for my enemies. In his death, Jesus takes on God's judgment and his wrath for our complacency. You see, in his death, Jesus justifies us before God. And those who repent of their sins and place faith in him get to have that blessing. And in his resurrection, Jesus declares, I am the founder and perfecter of the faith because you find faith in me, not in yourself. But by God's grace, he's not just the perfect judge and deliverer and savior for Israel, but he's for all of us. That's the gospel. That is the good news. The point's not to be like Samson, or hey, just don't be like Samson. The point is to look to Samson and see how he shows you Jesus. But there's a small bit of hope at the end of Samson's life. The Lord returned to Samson and gave him strength that he would be glorified, not Samson. But this should encourage some of us. Because some of us may be sitting here or reading this or thinking through this and think, I have wasted my life. My life has been all about me and what I can satisfy myself with in life. And you think that there is no way God would extend his grace and mercy towards me. It's been too big of a waste. But know that you are not beyond hope or redemption in Jesus. It's only too late if you're dead. But while you still have breath in your lungs, do not waste your life being satisfied in things you can offer yourself. But I would plead with you to take his promises and his warnings seriously and find ultimate satisfaction in Christ, in God himself. Sam Albury, a a theologian, uh, a current theologian, has said this, We don't look within ourselves to find true meaning, fulfillment, or salvation. When we look within ourselves, what we find is the problem, not the solution. But our response to complacency should not be try harder, do better, do more. The response to complacency is rather evaluation and correction. See, you can waste your life and you can still be useful to God. Samson was. Wasted his entire life, but he was still useful to God. Please do not confuse your usefulness to God with approval of God, from God. You cannot equate the two. A usefulness to God does not equate to an unwasted life. He can and he will use you despite your deficiencies and your sin. He's not calling you to, hey, I can't do this without you. He's saying, I can do this with or without you, but I'm calling you to bring me glory when you do it. So follow through with that. So let us not waste our lives. Let us fight complacency. Let us recognize it and fight it. Let us abandon self-satisfaction. Let us take God and his word seriously. May we approach him in humility, recognizing the danger of our sin, while at the same time boasting in the person and work of Jesus, in whom alone true satisfaction is offered and guaranteed. Let's pray.
Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful that in him we find ultimate satisfaction because in him and through the cross you offer us yourself, the creator of all things, the one to whom all creation sings out praise to you. God, may we not boast in our own strength, But may we recognize that all we truly have is Jesus, and he is the one whom we are supposed to boast in. And we are thankful that because of him and the sacrifice he paid, we now have you as an audience for things of this prayer, like this prayer, in our worship through song. And so it is in his name that we pray all of this. Amen.